Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hi, Professor. How are you? Hello. Hi, how are you? We are very well, thank you. How's uh, everything going in London? I think it's better than in Australia. Yeah. I think everywhere, anywhere is better than here right now. Well, everything's happening at the moment. I, I don't know if you just got my WhatsApp. I messaged you to say that we're having both, well, COVID problems as well as Wi-Fi problems. So um, just two minutes ago, David and I have been on the internet for half an hour trying to get him connected and we just couldn't. We were two minutes from abandoning the ship, but I think we've got it sorted. We got there. We persevered and here we are. Yeah. So how are you today? What, 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 what do you have planned today? Do you have a clinic or what are you up to? Mainly, I'm on holiday. Oh, <laughs> nice. well, thank you for donating your, your valuable time to come and talk to us. Catching up on everything. And uh, how, how's your whole sort of working life been in, you know, now you guys have opened up or, or were you sort of working throughout? Well, we have been working throughout, um, although we have been very restricted in some of the things we can do and it's mainly um, on video consultations and so on. But um, yeah, everything's it's it's getting better, but it's still you know problems. Yeah, and we are certainly in a problem at the moment. Although where we live in New South Wales, we're sort of leading the charge with the vaccinations. Sort of, we're catching up with some of the more civilized parts of the world. So <laughs> hopefully, in a month or two, we can get out of this lockdown and have some sort of normality. But it's going to take a long, long time, I think. So, Professor, um, Jake and I wanted to have a discussion with you because there's topics that continually reoccur on the podcasts. I mean, the podcast initially, just to give you a little bit of background, although I'm sure you're an avid listener and you've listened to every episode, but assuming (laughs) that you haven't, assuming that you haven't, um, the the podcast, we initially started this podcast focusing on aesthetics. And as we sort of progressed through a number of discussions that we've had, a number of themes uh, seem to continually occur. Um, And one of them was um, body dysmorphia and the way that it impacts our industry, the way that people like Jake and other medical professionals and nurses are administering their treatments, how they're Mm -hmm. communicating with patients, sort of expectations, you know, are we doing the right thing by our patients? So it's it's a theme that comes up. We've had a couple of um, discussions with a doctor here in Australia called Dr. Shabmaris Kandari, who's been very generous in giving us some insights into it. But um, what what appealed to us was the research that you're doing. You're obviously a world expert and leader in these fields. And we wanted to have a bit more of a detailed discussion about some of the treatments um, that are now sort of coming to light and particularly in relation to, to BDD. Who are your listeners? Are they need practitioners or are they people who are seeking cosmetic procedures? So we have a good mix, but I, I would say the majority of our listeners are within the industry. So they are injectors, they're doctors, they're surgeons, they're clinic owners like David. Um, they are, you know, sort of, I guess, the providers of our services, but we do have consumers as well. So we sort of talk in a um, an open-minded way. We're sort of trying to appeal to everyone, including the layperson. Mm. And I wondered maybe if we could just sort of um, introduce yourself or if you wanted to and just sort of tell our listeners exactly what you do, what your background is and where you work. Okay. Um, My name is David Beale. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and a visiting professor in cognitive behavioural psychotherapies um, at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neurosciences at King's College London. And uh, I'm a consultant psychiatrist at uh, the Maltzley Hospital and and also the Nightingale Hospital. Fantastic. Now, just to tell the listeners as well, normally David and I are together when we're doing these podcasts, but 
because of this lockdown and, and the severe sort of situation where I am, I can't even be with David. So apologies if there's a bit of loss of synergy in this one or a bit of um, delay in, you know, in our questions. So we'll try and be mindful. And David and I have got a bit of a hand signal where if I want to talk, I'll put my hand up and so on. So please ignore us if we're doing weird hand gestures. Um, so why did, you, why did you become a psychiatrist? I mean, what appealed to you when you were a medical student to do that? It's a long time ago. I'm age 16. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd done a um, what's called an intercalated degree in psychology um, as part of one's medical training where you take a year out. And I think that was when I first started to want to um, decide to do psychiatry. I was particularly influenced by a psychiatrist called Anthony Clare, who'd written a book called Psychiatry and Descent. And um, he was um, a very you know, he was a very good interviewer and had done a show on, you know, in the psychiatrist chair. And so at the time, you know, psychiatry was full of um, dissent and problems and things. And it just always seemed to be the most exciting field. Um, and so I sort of easily went into it, I think. Yeah, I remember when I was at medical school, um, we only did four weeks of psychiatry, so I only had a, a real microcosm of, of what you guys do. But uh, it's a fascinating world, but I, it, it's very different to what I ended up doing, which was surgery. I'm, I'm more of a doer than a thinker. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested to, to hear your insights. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, Professor Veal, you're, um, from everything that we've read and ascertained and speaking to people that know of your work here in Australia, um, the impression that we get is that you're quite progressive um, in terms of the treatments that you're undertaking, like things like wake and light therapy and so on. So how have you sort of dealt with maybe some of the pushback or feedback you've had from colleagues in relation to these treatments? Because I, and from what I understand, sometimes when people are brave and, and sort of exploring these new treatments, it can be some pushback from the establishment. So I'm curious as to how that's sort of, how that's fared for you and how you've dealt with it, if at all. Sure, there's, mm, there's been a bit of a pushback, but I mean, the, the easiest thing on all these things is, is to ask, well, what's the evidence? And so, of course, it's easy to be critical because at the moment there's limited evidence and it takes time and a lot of hard work to collect the evidence. But I think a lot of people recognise that there are some very interesting signals out there in terms of um, promising uh, evidence for all sorts of environmental type therapeutics, whether it's to do with light and dark and um, uh, nutrition and so on. And so, um, you know, it's at this stage, it's just very, everything is always very slow and it just takes time to sort of collect the evidence and really understand the moderators, things that make it easier or better as to, to provide that sort of treatment. Yeah. Who it's for. Um, but, you know, I think people are always interested in new stuff. I don't think there's so much pushback. People are cautious. Um, and that's part of you know different personalities, and there are always people a little bit more innovative and people who are more solid and, and so on. And so we, we, we go slowly. Yeah. One of the things that you you mentioned earlier on when you, in your introduction, you said you've been doing lots of uh, virtual consultations. So that's a new thing for yourself, or were you always doing virtual consults with your patients? No, we used to be doing virtual consultations and videos before lockdown. It's just obviously increased. Um, I find it's very, it's good to to do such assessments, particularly when you have a national service and people prefer not to travel and so on. And you can get a good understanding of the problem and a treatment plan. I think it's a little trickier sometimes in um, therapy. Uh, where it's sometimes more difficult to be aware of the nuances and the shifts in mood and so on. Um, but um, so I think in the future we might have more of a sort of hybrid model where there will be some sessions online because it's more convenient and there'll be some sessions perhaps more face-to-face. -face. And I think it partly depends upon the nature of the problem. Um, and um, I mean... I prefer if I had the choice seeing people face to face, but um, some people prefer it, obviously, for convenience, all sorts of things. Um, yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned the nuances that you perhaps miss when you're having mm. a conversation via a computer. I'm imagining things like body language, 
I don't know whether you believe that people emit an energy or an aura about them that can sometimes give clues as to how people are feeling or their state of mind. So what are some of the nuances that you think you potentially lose having these virtual conversations? And then how do you combat that with all of your experiencing, knowing that you're probably not getting all of the data that you need to make the assessment? Well, I think, yes, you're often in an assessment, it's probably good enough to know what's going on and make a treatment plan. I think it's a little bit more tricky in longer-term therapy just to be able to pick up those nuances always. And, and that's why I'm saying my preference is to be able to see people face-to-face or have some sort of hybrid model. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, even you know, I prefaced it at the start, even just doing a podcast with, with yourself and we're going to have a nice chat about you know an interesting topic. It's difficult when you know there's a bit of delay and you know David and I are both trying to chip in and ask questions and you've obviously got a lot to say. So when you've got an ill patient, who probably doesn't want to be there on their laptop in their house and having a medical conversation that it's going to be difficult. Like, do you find that your patients, particularly obviously with BDD, do they just not turn up or do they sort of log off or do they put their finger over the webcam? Like, Give us some insight into what happens. Well, you're right. Some people would prefer then not to have the camera on or be off camera in some way. Um, But equally, face-to-face people have now got permission to wear a mask and things like that Mm. so that they actually prefer to be able to wear a mask it hides their face for example yeah so it gets complicated because there it's actually being used as a what we call safety behavior to prevent being humiliated or rejected or something so it's important to be able to see people face-to-face and as part of the therapy and treatment um so (laughs) it's it's tricky yeah, can imagine even for us, as Jake alluded to, it's difficult for us sometimes too. So I can't imagine sometimes for you or people in your position, yeah, <laughs> you probably just want to have them in front of you and have those discussions. So um, before we sort of move on a bit more deeply into BDD and some of the other things we wanted to discuss, obviously just um, COVID is, is, is absorbing everyone's lives at the moment, particularly here in Australia. Um, one of the things that's, that's not often spoken about here or in sort of trails far behind the, the headlines in terms of deaths from COVID and people admitted to hospital is the mental health aspect of how these this virus has, has affected people, particularly young people, I think. Um, what are you noticing fr- from your perspective or what did you notice when, when Britain was in, in the height of all the lockdowns over there? Were you noticing in terms of patients presenting with, you know, stress, anxiety, um, depression and, and sort of where, is, where are things at now with that? Well, it's just been horrendous, um, yeah. and it's certainly increased mental health problems. Um, sometimes it's had a direct impact with, in terms of, let's say, health anxiety about uh, developing COVID. Um, but that's actually a minority. It's much more of a general level of stress and anxiety has increased everybody's emotional problems. So if you've got OCD or BDD, it's just made it worse in many right. ways. Yeah. Um, and um, the problem, particularly in the state sector, is that there's been a reduced capacity um, in terms of the number of people who's been able to be seen, and yet it's been increased demand in terms of the services required and the waiting lists have gone up. Um, and um, so it's, you know, everything's still focused on physical safety of COVID, but, you know, the mental health problems and all sorts of other problems caused by COVID is just only beginning to be realised, I think. And the, um, the the story has not yet been told. It's going to go on for ages, I think, the repercussions. Yeah. And, and what what's, what do you sort of think those, those long-term repercussions are going to be. I know I'm asking you to crystal ball gaze a little bit, so you know maybe a little bit of an unfair question, but just in terms of your experience and, and sort of your intuition as to what this long tail effect potentially looks like. Oh God, um, I think it's mainly affecting young people. Um, whether it's and, and just the whole broad thing from socioeconomic to um, lifestyles to uh, being able to connect with others, all sorts of stuff. Uh, mental health, it's just, it does not look pretty. And um, I, I think it's still going to be, t- you know, we really don't know what's going to happen in the long term. And I think we're just still watching, waiting, seeing. 
I've got one other question going back to virtual consultations and, you know, it's often referred to as the Zoom boom. And it's relevant to, to my industry and David's industry where lots of people suddenly became aware of what they look like um, mm-hmm. or more realistically what they look like um, when they're faced with a camera. And, you know, lots of people find it very uncomfortable. They don't like it. Um, they would rather not be on a camera if they didn't have to. And surgeons and injectors like myself have become unbelievably busy um, as a result of COVID. So it's kind of been a very odd but amazing bonus for the, from this pandemic, at least for me and David. What do you, do, are there any studies into this sort of being a provable phenomenon or is it just anecdote? I haven't seen any studies on it as such, but you know, body image is complex. And um, when you've already vulnerable to having a body image problem, um, it clearly triggers it and makes it worse because you're going to start judging yourself on the basis of some wrinkle that becomes more prominent on Zoom that you really focus in on and become very self-focused and become more aware of it and believe that others, you know, judge you on the basis of this wrinkle or whatever. So, um, you know, Zoom will make you more self-conscious and um, so so it's not helpful if you're already predisposed to that problem. Um, And of course, it doesn't, I don't think it actually probably solved very easily by various aesthetic procedures. I mean, the problem is one of um, your, the way that you may be judging yourself according to the way you're looking. And of course, you're much more complex than that. Yeah. Now, I know Jake's got some, some technical questions in relation to um, how BDD manifests and the difference between OCD and BDD. But I sort of, before we get to that, what, it, what causes these um, conditions to manifest? Is it genetics? Is it environmental? Is it multifactorial? Um, is mm. it just, you know, luck of the draw? How, is there any sort of anything you can point to that makes people more likely to sort of become yeah. affected by these conditions? Well, um, it's complicated. I mean, the first problem is being human, you know, and you don't get... <laughs> Being, you know, if you're a crocodile or a pig or something, you don't have problems. <laughs> Is that because they don't have mirrors? Not that they can't feel it. <laughs> no, it's because they have a different brain. We have a more tricky, complicated brain. And not only do we have an old brain of reptiles and mammals and so on, which is very good at keeping us safe and getting resources and so on, uh, we also got a new brain. And the new brain is very good at communicating and going to the moon and all sorts of other fantastic, wonderful things we do. But um, it also has that ability to imagine and to worry and to ruminate and things. And so you can see you set up these loops in the brain where you're constantly um, imagining things that could be wrong or problematic or and worrying, and it activates your own threat system. So you, you sort of develop these internal threats, you know, things which are, the brain is designed to look after external threats and being um, chased by a mugger or a lion or something. Um, we're now sort of creating our own threats. So the first problem is a design fault in the brain. That's not your fault. Being born human, it's not you don't have a choice over it. Um, and then, you know, most emotional problems have at least some heritability. Um, it's just, again, the luck of the draw. It's probably about 40% or so, at least for most her- uh, emotional problems are heritable. And um, it is luck of the draw, whether you're going to get genes for leukemia or genes for this, that and the other. It's just a predisposition towards a particular problem, which then requires various things to shape you or to trigger you during particularly early childhood and adolescence. Um, and so, you know, all the standard stuff in terms of the nature of relationships and attachments to your carers and things about being bullied or teased or all sorts of stuff that's not in your control, especially during childhood and adolescence. Uh, whether it's emotional abuse and neglect or um, physical abuse and neglect or sexual abuse or stuff happens. From your personal perspective, um, Professor, how do you deal with having these conversations? Because I would imagine that having these um, potentially quite personal, traumatic um, 
mixed emotional conversations with your patients. How do you as a professional deal with that and not take on a lot of these issues and, and feelings of stress and anxiety? I'm just curious from your perspective how you, how you do that. Um, I suppose not to be try to be so personally involved because otherwise you'd get completely overwhelmed by these issues. Um, and to always try to model being compassionate and caring and non-judgmental and um, trying to, you know, as a doctor and a therapist, you're trying to always help people to change to be able to, and, and recognise that you know, this does not define them and that there are many other things that they want to be able to do in their life and you can help them towards that. Um, yeah, David sort of alluded to it before, but the diagnoses like obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, and mm. um, maybe even being a hypochondriac, or I, I don't know what the, the word is for that disorder, maybe a health anxiety disorder. Yeah. Um, are they all on a spectrum, or, or can you be very definitely one and none of the others? Both. They're all clearly definite things, and yet for some people they are a bit of a spectrum, and you may have additional problems as well, as well as your main problem. Um, and they're actually all grouped together now as part of ICD-11 um, in terms of uh, obsessive compulsive and related disorders, which includes both OCD, body dysmorphic disorder, health anxiety, and various other conditions, which where there are repetitive behaviours. Right. So you, you mentioned there's a criteria. Can you just give our listeners a, a very sort of firm sentence of what is body dysmorphic disorder, just so they can take that away and sort of fully understand it? So it essentially consists of a preoccupation with perceived defects or ugliness, usually around the face. Um, but the flaw is not you know, that noticeable to others or appears only slight, yet it's causing enormous shame and, and depression or interference in life. And often such individuals may be at high risk of suicide and, and so on. And often at the core of the BDD is a distorted um, body image from what we call an observer perspective, looking back at yourself. And you have a very high degree of self-consciousness and awareness. And so they're often avoiding um, public or social situations and spending um, many hours mirror gazing or checking because there's often doubts as to whether they really do look as ugly as they think they do. Um, but, you know, the, the main message is always it is treatable, it is difficult. Um, and the main treatment of uh, cognitive behaviour therapy, which is focus specialist for BDD and uh, certain types of SSRI antidepressants and maximum doses and not by antipsychotics or by cosmetic procedures, which are invariably um, ineffective or sometimes people may find something helpful, but it doesn't usually take away the preoccupation and the distress. Right. So, so what, what sort of red flags are you looking for in a consultation? Like what are the telltale signs, the dead giveaways that you are able to say, yes, um, you know, this is what we're looking at here? Um, I would say that in all cosmetic procedure, um, it's important for a practitioner to be able to understand the motivation and expectations of the cosmetic procedure. Um, and uh, so, so we, you know, if you are going to refer to a psychiatrist or psychologist, it's important they're not viewed as a gatekeeper or having some sort of final veto about whether or not a procedure is to be offered. And, you know, the message is that I think that you're concerned about your patient and you need to provide a, a good explanation of what an assessment is for increasing the potential benefits of the patient if you feel that uh, a cosmetic procedure may not be helpful, you know. And you might be um, making direct observations about your patient in terms of, you know, what's their, their clothing, their makeup clues and things, hairstyles, excessive makeup, hats or things like that. Um all use perhaps to try and camouflage certain features, uh, perhaps their posture, um, avoiding eye contact, um, uh, you know, their mood, their emotional reactions, and the social anxiety, the fears of being judged, and things like that. Yeah, and really trying to understand what the the, the their problem is, 
and what do they want improved? Because um, it's there may well be a discrepancy between what your objective um, assessment is and what their perceived appearance problem is. Yeah, and they may describe it in very um, terms like being disgusting or ugly. Um, and they might refer to previous practitioners as butchers or ruining their life or things like that when they get very upset, perhaps, when um, describing how long it's been a problem or when they first became aware of it, um, or perhaps they've been bullied as a kid or all sorts of things of domestic violence, things like that. Um, and there may be a lot of, perhaps, influence of their peer group you know, in terms of um, their shared norms of, of their appearance, in terms of um, well, how, how they're comparing themselves to others. Um, perhaps they're in a, a setting where there's an awful lot of um, ideals in the beauty industry or things like that. You know, they're using social media a lot and constantly comparing themselves um, and you know, constantly looking at websites, modifications, and, you know, the key issue here is the preoccupation and how many hours a day you're spending thinking about your appearance and how to improve it or things like that. And how realistic are they in terms of how their life will change after any procedure? Yeah. I can imagine it. And this is a question for, for Jake as well and, and from an outsider's perspective. It seems that, um, you know, this industry is new, you know, I guess when you can compare it to other disciplines, it's sort of still finding its way. And, you know, people like Jake, for example, you know, you sort of get confronted by these patients who maybe display some or, you know, all of what you've just described. And sometimes it's intermittent. You know, you might find that something starts out with a, a minor concern that then can manifest into something that's much larger than that, or you sort of go from one thing that you don't like about yourself and then that's fixed and then you find the next thing. So, I mean, I, this is a question for Jake as well. I mean, it must be quite confronting. I mean, you're not trained really to deal with this kind of stuff. You know, you're going to work every day hoping to make people look and feel better. But, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, does it ever cross your mind? Am I doing these people a disservice? Am I creating a monster here? Um, yeah, so question for Jake. Well, he's not here. I'm going to ask him a question. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to add to your question and, and ask, Professor, um, do you think that you know, the, the, the accessibility and availability of what we can do now makes the problem worse. But I, I guess I'll answer from, from my perspective. Um, yeah, I was talking to Shab, who, who was on episode six when we first covered BDD in, in any great detail on the podcast. And we kind of came to the realization, I guess, and it's pretty obvious, but maybe most injectors don't think about it. And I guess cosmetic surgeons that we walk a fine line between someone coming in saying, I don't like something. And it's almost the observer has to make the diagnosis. You know, it's up to me as the injector to say, I think that's a valid reason to treat or, or not. And, you know, but from the patient's perspective, if they've got body dysmorphia or if they've got something that is quite validly not right in inverted commas, then, you know, maybe, maybe there is a reason to treat, but I might not agree with it. So it's, it's a bit, it's a bit of a weird conundrum. It's almost a subjective diagnosis uh, i'm going to leave it there and let professor answer that well you can also choose you have a choice you don't have to treat them and you know you have a much patients demand it so they can go somewhere else if they really want to of course so, <laughs> um no it is a contract between you and the patient in terms of what it is uh, negotiated and what can be achieved and what their expectations are and if you feel that it's really not in their best interest, then you can advise accordingly. But, you know, I think that this key, this key issue is about expectations in terms of how will their life change? You know, how much does it intrude into their daily life now? And how much uh, does it interfere with their ability to work or study? How is that going to change? How is it going to change their social or intimate relationships? And so on, because of this particular procedure. Yeah. And just to add to that, I mean, you know, and we've had Steve Harris on David, who, who's a cosmetic physician in London, yeah. and he he's sort of very vocal on social media about how injectors are, are often the problem rather than the patient, where yeah. they're sort of warping people and making them look like aliens. That's his sort of latest post where he's sort of making people look ultra augmented. And it's true. 
you know, uh, th- there's a fine line between making someone look beautiful or tweaked or, or slightly better and unusual. And yet maybe the patient doesn't even realize they're walking around looking unusual. It's the injector that can be the problem. So um, it's a more complicated <laughs> topic. Yeah, we're, doing, we're doing a study with Steve at the moment on uh, women who are seeking excessive lip fillers. And um, so again, it's slow and hopefully we'll have some results later this year or next year. Well, we would love to extend that to Sydney because we it's a it's a pandemic here of, of over augmented lip fillers as well. It's not just COVID that's the problem. But I think it's it's not just it all depends upon the amount, isn't it? And and the function behind it. And there are those individuals who are having very excessive lip fillers as opposed to just a bit more, because it is seemed to be about redefining beauty and um trying to say, you know, this is something it's a, it's a different culture around it. Yeah. And um, I think, as you say, many practitioners feel uncomfortable with it and they don't, it doesn't fit with their idea of beauty. But, um, you know, there's a whole subculture that's redefining it and doing something different. But, but let's just explore that. So obviously, injectors like myself and Steve, I think we're, we're pretty aligned. I know Steve is maybe more vocal about it, but is it a problem... For example, you know, people walk around with tattoos on their face and, yeah. you know, shave their head or, or whatever. Sorry, David, you got a shaved head, but you know what I mean? Like something that other people would find wacky in inverted commas. So yeah. is that a problem if both the injector and the patient like the aesthetic? I, I don't know. It's just a philosophical question. Really. I don't know yet. I think we're still trying to find out. Um, but usually I think that such individuals do have other emotional problems and um, we don't know how much of it is part of that. And it's just something we're still beginning to explore. Um, because I think, that, well, the risk is when you start to then become to define yourself through your lips and it becomes... Um, Very one-dimensional. Yeah, and it becomes a preoccupation. And it's, it may not be distressing or interfering in your life, but it still sort of takes over. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, you know, whether you describe it as a problem or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, something that you, that you alluded to um, or spoke about earlier on with, with what we touched on with social media and we've had, you know, many, many, many discussions around, you know, the double-edged sword or the gift and the curse, which, which is social media. I mean, I can relate myself. I mean, you know, Jake's constantly at me to, you know, show my personality more on, on Instagram and, you know, and, and, you know, it's confronting. And it seems like it's the necessary evil in 2021 that if you don't exist on social media, you don't really exist at all, really. And it's affecting the way that people, as you said, perceive themselves, they're comparing themselves to others, I know it's affecting surgeons. People are coming in with photos of, 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 of outcomes that are not realistic for their age or their ethnicity or their bone structure. So how do you sort of navigate that? How do you, how do you sort of combat the, the sort of the dark side of social media and not allow it to sort of infiltrate every facet of your life and your thoughts? Mm. I think as individually, we can use social media to promote our own professional interests and disseminate our research and things like that. Um, But, you know, we might have private accounts for our friends and things like that. So, you know, you you can keep clear boundaries between the two. I I personally wouldn't put personal stuff up on my professional accounts and things like that. Uh, I know people want you to, but you can't have it. (laughs) And look, it's... Every technical innovation uh, that's happened in humankind has been associated with horror, right from the printing presses to this, that, and the other. And we all have to learn how to live and adapt to it. Um, so I, I, I think this will evolve. And but as you say, the key thing for many people with body image problems is the problem of comparing and social ranking and highlighting a little bit of someone's feature and then defining it by themselves and then ranking themselves according to that. And, of course, they're nearly always ranking themselves as below it and then somehow that they are you know, worthless because of it. So it, it's all to do with comparing and social ranking. That is the problem in social media. 
Yeah, I, I guess um, the problem is the, the lack of moderation. And, you know, if, if you're a doctor on Instagram, suddenly you're, you're sort of mixing business with pleasure to, to an extent because, it, you know, it's not moderated. Um, but I don't know if you saw in Norway, they've passed a law recently, um, trying to remember the name of it, it was something like the, the non... Um, manipulation law or something like that but basically it's law now that if you've put a filter or you've tweaked a photo you have to state it you know under your photo otherwise it's illegal i think stuff like that's good i mean you know is it gonna solve the problem no but at least it makes people aware that you know this is a real photo or not um but that's not going to be standardized globally unfortunately so yeah i don't know it's it's these things usually stretch don't they so yeah, I was called the, it was called the retouched photo law. Yeah. It it seems like technology and innovation are moving so fast that everything is struggling to keep up like our coping mechanisms, you know, these problems manifest before we even realize that they even potentially could be a problem. So it feels like we're almost fighting a battle that's very difficult to win because our rate of progression in terms of technology and trends and what people are wanting just move at such a rapid rate that we're just constantly trying to figure out how to deal with it. The machines are going to win, I think. <laughs> the algorithms are going to win. <laughs> yeah. Going back to um, the, the consultation, and I, I know it's very hard to sort of pin you know you down and say, what, what you know, there is no screening tool that I know of that is sort of seen as, you know, the gold standard for diagnosing BDD. But, you know, most most of our listeners are injectors. We do have some surgeons listening. So what tangible things or specific things, apart from observation and, you know, body language, can people ask? Are there any agreed criteria or agreed screening tools that, that you know of, or is it more a case of being bespoke? There are screening tools. We've got one. Um, Kathy Phillips, colleagues have got one. Um, and, you know, if people answer them honestly, then it can be helpful to be able to pick up these things. I mean, I don't think it's such a problem in practices with predominantly injectors, injectables and fillers and so on. Um, it's a bigger problem more for certain types of cosmetic procedures, especially things like rhinoplasty and so on. So it does vary according to the particular practice. Um, I think you're probably more grappling with individuals who have more difficulties in their temperament, their personality, and in interactions with uh, you as a practitioner and their unrealistic expectations and things like that. Um, so that it's not just BDD that may be a problem in cosmetic procedures yeah yeah i came across your work um professor um on an allegan webinar i think it was last year in the lockdown you, you obviously talked yeah. about bdd and i thought it was fantastic and you shared a video um that will maybe we'll try and post it on our um our own feed david to sort of just illustrate what what bdd is like for a patient i thought it was a great just sort of five six minute video but yeah. for those injectors encountering someone who they think okay this isn't you know, a normal request and, and I, I'm seeing the red flags. I mean, it's an awkward conversation at the best of times, but how do you deal with these people delicately? Because at the end of the day, it's a mental illness. It's not, you know, them being fussy. It's a mental illness if you truly have BDD. So how do you go about this delicately and and explain to someone who maybe hasn't, you know, thought that this is a problem for them because they lack insight? Mm. Uh, I think it's being always very honest. Um, and that you're concerned about them, that you you believe that you're not the best person to help them. And that doesn't mean seeing someone down the road who's your worst enemy, but... Um, <laughs> then to Dr. To, Harris. <laughs> <laughs> but to, you know, refer them to perhaps someone you know who's got an interest as, uh, in body image problems as, as a psychologist or psychiatrist who can do a good assessment and understanding of the problem and um, to see whether, in fact, there are other things that could perhaps help them, um, which is in their best interest because, you know, if it, it's much easier for you just to take the money and do what it is they want um, but you feel that it's not in their best interests and it may not help them and they may be unhappy and things like that. 
See, I, I knew you were going to say that, a sort of, I guess, a textbook answer. But in reality, what's going to happen is the patient's going to throw a chair at you and say, fuck no. off, do my nose, or <laughs> whatever it may be. <laughs> well, there's been, I've heard of situations like that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, joking aside, like, is that the normal reaction when someone for the first time is confronted and, you know, maybe a barrier is put in their place to say, I'm not sure if this is right for you. Is that typical of a BDD patient or or not? No, I don't think so. Look, there are occasional case reports, aren't there, of surgeons being murdered by their patients and things <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> after the procedure. But these are very, very rare. And I think that your what you've just described there would be extremely rare. Um, it's not common. You'd be very unlucky. Right. I would have to think that if someone's come to you for a treatment and you have used your best clinical judgment and just by picking up, as you said, from discussion and picking up cues and so on, that if you turned around to them and said, hey, you know what, what you're asking me for is not such a big deal. Like there isn't an issue with this part of your face. In my professional opinion, I would have thought potentially that could be quite comforting for a patient to receive that kind of honest feedback and you saying, look, you know what, I know that what you're seeing is real to you, but for me as a professional who does this every day, what I'm looking at doesn't strike me as a problem. And I guess this is a response open to Jake and, and, and to you, Professor. But they've often been told that several times right. by people, uh, family members or carers or other surgeons and so on. And um, that's not what fits with what they feel, and what they see in their mind's eye. Mm-hmm. And so it's very tough. It's very difficult. Um, but if you, you know, strongly believe that this is not in their best interest and you can't help them, I think it's really important to be honest. Well, I don't know if we touched on the prevalence of BDD because one of the things, again, this is all anecdote, but I encounter because I, I teach injectors and I've sort of been a trainer for a while, is that a more insightful patient or, or a tricky patient, if you want to call them tricky because they know what mm-hmm. they want, they're often labelled as having BDD, you know, by injectors, just, oh, you know, I'm not going to treat them, they've got BDD, which of course is not Mm. diagnostic. It's just that they're asking for something that maybe is particular. So, yeah, there's a bit of crossover between patients who are difficult and patients who have got BDD. And and I am guess... Well, BDD is common. I mean, we're talking... BDD is common. I mean, we're talking about 2% of the population. 2%. Uh, Yeah. Right. Um, most okay. of those individuals don't have features which are necessarily correctable um, by any cosmetic procedure. Um, often they have multiple concerns, and so they may be just be coming to you for one aspect of their concerns. Um, and there is a you know clearly a bit of a continuum in terms of body image dissatisfaction and BDD, and there can be a grey area. And it's, as I said, another dimension is aspects of your temperament and personality, and that sort of <laughs> may also influence the presentation. So, um, as I said, there, I think there are quite a few people who are very preoccupied and have got unrealistic expectations, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have BDD. And it's not that they're distressed excessively or they're not interfering in their life and things like that. But it's and, and one of the problems is doing the research because it's very difficult to get good research done on predictors of dissatisfaction from a cosmetic procedure. And you know, even things like rhinoplasty, which is perhaps the most one of the most difficult procedures to have satisfaction from, you're still talking about a few, you know, having to do a prospective study on a couple of thousand patients to really be doing lots of um uh questionnaires and um, things that might help to predict dissatisfaction um, before, preoperatively, and uh, be able to follow them up in the long term. And that's really expensive, difficult research to do that no one in the industry is prepared to pay for at the moment. I was curious, is there any uh, trends or data that would lead you to believe that there are certain segments of the populace that are more susceptible or tend to manifest these conditions? So we're talking like age, gender, um, socioeconomic, you know, regional, um, anything mm-hmm. like that? Well, there are certain areas of the body like the nose where it seems to be, mm-hmm. have more dissatisfaction. 
And so not surprising that um, younger uh, people who often have multiple preoccupations, who more interference in their life, more personalities, all, all these sorts of things probably are warning signals, warning signs, as it were. But um, there isn't, the research hasn't been done in terms of good prospective studies, and it's, it's difficult to do. Well, if you need more data, get us involved, Professor, because we'd be happy to help with the lip study. <laughs> You know, joking aside, like, you know, even David, he's, he's non-medical, but he owns four clinics. He knows that lips are a problem. You know, it's just anecdotal. Everyone knows that, you know, unfortunately, it tends to be younger girls coming in wanting more and more and more and more. So it's very difficult to do that sort of prospective research in terms of being able to recruit people. You know, it's easier in... You know, the, the state sector or a particular problem like cancer or even depression, where yeah. people are more willing, I think, to be participants in research and to be committed to follow up and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and in this area, it's, it's particularly difficult. You know, it's all about having a service and they don't really want to be interested in, in actually having the time and investment to and in doing the research beforehand and afterwards and things like that. And you get a very biased group that's participating. Mm, it's true. I don't mind just saying it's very difficult to do research in this area. Yeah. Uh, I've got to tell you, I, I just finished watching uh, Fantastic Fungi. I have so many questions that I want, I want to ask you about treatment modality. But before <laughs> we get to that, do we want to maybe just run through the traditional ways, I guess, up until this point that uh, therapy takes place or how you go about I guess, assisting these people? Um, well, the first thing to be able to have a good understanding of what the problem is and to have some clear goals and what we're working towards, to have a good um, or called formulation of what's keeping the problem going, particularly in terms of perhaps you're ruminating and the way you're very self-focused and the way that you're comparing, um, avoiding, and checking, all these sorts of things feed the preoccupation and distress. So it's about trying to help you to um, find alternatives to each of these processes and help you to emotionally process past aversive experiences like bullying and so on, which perhaps still feed the uh, distorted body image that you might be having. So um, it, it's a process and um, it's hard work. It requires a lot of courage to do things differently. How many, or sorry, what percentage of your patients do you find a trigger like bullying or like, um, you know, sexual harassment or, or something that really triggered it off versus just those people who developed it for no reason? Um, probably at least a good third are associated with particular triggers, the things that shape them, like bullying um, or abuse or something. Um, and that, that really, you know, that is a target in therapy. Um, but for many people, there aren't any particular things where it may be just difficult to understand. Mm. And so it, the focus is much more on things that are keeping the problem going in terms of maintenance, the avoidance, the checking, the being, the ruminating, the comparing, being very self-focused and, and so on. But those are the most important things to make sure they're not go, still going. One thing that I've never understood, and maybe you can explain it, is that I understand that BD, BDD patients usually don't have any insight that, that there is a problem. They think the problem is real. They think their nose is two foot long and so on. But they must have insight in the fact that they're walking around with a brown paper bag or they're hiding away or no one else is doing this. So they must appreciate that this isn't normal or, or have I got that wrong? Well, um, the shame of... Um, feeling very self-conscious and that people are looking at you and so on is um, greater than the embarrassment of the camouflage and things like that. Right. So it's all about weighing up the advantages and disadvantages, I think, and um, the consequences. So that uh, it's, it's always yeah. the shame which, you know, trumps it. And in terms of the way you'd go about designing a treatment protocol for a patient. I mean, there's obviously the um, psychological aspect where you might be doing things like behavioral therapy and, you know, getting people to to talk through their issues and, and sort of doing it in a verbal way. And then you've got the medication side of things as well. So can you just explain to us 
you know, what a, like, you know, what a protocol may look like. How do you make the decision as to whether or not someone's more suitable for um, more psychological treatments versus um, medical, in, like, no, sorry, uh, medica- intervention with medication or, or, or is, it a, is it a case of, you know, case by case, it's a mixture, just trying to get some understanding of how that works. Severe patients are usually offered a mixture and more moderate cases may be offered a choice, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really patient choice. Um, so some people feel very strongly about psychological therapies or more strongly about medication and so on. Um, but usually most people are keener to try a psychological therapy first. Uh, and, um, but we would usually recommend a combination in more severe cases. Am I right in saying that the, the first line medication, if you do go to that step, is the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors? And most people would know that as an antidepressant, or, or that's most where it's yeah. most commonly used. Yeah, so they're, much, they're much better at anti-anxiety. It was all just a big marketing ploy. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, they're pretty, well, they're pretty weak treatments as antidepressants. They're much better at reducing anxiety. I was going to ask, why have they chosen an antidepressant for an anti-anxiety? But you've just answered the question. Because back in the 80s, <laughs> I remember when they were first described and marketed, it was thought to be better marketing to you know, do it as an antidepressant. Interesting. So, it, it, I mean, I'm going back to sort of medical school days here. So it normally takes about three weeks for patients to start to feel the effect of these drugs. Is that correct? So... Um, We'd usually wait to get to the maximum dose for at least 12 weeks to determine whether it's an effect. 12 weeks. Something that I wanted to talk to you about, Professor, is um, recent, I guess, insights or understanding that there's a, there's, a, um, there's a link between the gut and the brain and how what we eat and the things we put in our body can affect the way that our brain functions and the way we feel. Um, inwardly and outwardly. So can you maybe speak to that a little bit and maybe give us some insights into what that research looks like and what the takeaways are? Um, there's just a lot of emerging evidence that there is a close relationship between your gut and the brain. It's referred to as the second brain and a lot of interest in your microbiota. In other words, your bacteria and viruses, phages that live in your gut and all over your body. And so there are about 200 trillion bacteria and stuff living in your gut and um, they're, they're there to look after you and unless you look after them they can't look after you so you know that's why it seems to be important to have a high fiber diet and perhaps more probiotics and things like your kombuchas and your ears and your um, all your case <laughs> to have lots of nourishing bacteria to uh, keep um, your lower gut happy and they can then influence your vagus nerve back up to the brain and your other chemicals produce to influence the brain and, and the body in general. And there's just lots of interest um, that, that's emerging that this is important. But again, you know, it's early days. Yeah. So so would you potentially work with uh, a nutritionist or I'm, sort of, I'm not sort of familiar with, you know, your knowledge on nutrition well, or how do you sort of screen for that or potentially point someone down that direction? If someone is uh, eating junk, lots of multi-processed foods and so on, yes, we would highlight this. But, you know, it's obviously it's, it's not a cure. It's probably going to be another piece in the jigsaw um, in yeah. terms of helping someone to change. And the same as if they're very inactive. It's important to be able to help them to get out and exercise and do stuff. Um, if they're very withdrawn, then it's important to be able to help people to connect to others. You know, all these things are different parts of the jigsaw. And just going back to the, the cognitive behavioural th- therapy, how, how long would you see these patients for and, and how, how often do you see them? And do you, do you get to the point where you discharge them and say you're cured or not? Um, standard therapy is usually about 20 sessions as an outpatient. There may be weekly or more frequent sessions to begin with, especially when they're more depressed. Um, for those people who have not made progress as an outpatient, um, and over time they may be lucky to get into one of our sort of residential units and have a more intensive program where they come and stay for three or four months. Um, so there's all sorts of levels of stepped care in terms of providing treatment. So speaking of um, emerging treatment protocols, um, 
let's uh, let's talk about psilocybin um, and or, or psychedelics. So, I mean, before we sort of get into it too deeply, um, maybe just give our listeners a, an explanation of, of sort of what psychedelics are and how they impact the brain, and then maybe we can take a bit more of a, a deeper dive into treatment applications and what research, although it's early. But interestingly, um, Professor, you know, like some of the research I've been doing, you know, I've, I've found out that there was a lot of studies going on with, with these sorts of medications many years ago. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, around the 60s and the 70s. And then for whatever reason, you know, the 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 powers that be turned on on these on these plant medicines for whatever reasons. And this isn't this is not a political a political um, podcast, but um, this is not new. And it seems like only in the last few years, like places like John Hopkins University over in the United States are out actually now starting to recognise that there are there is some um, yep. utility in these type of uh, treatments. So uh, yeah, just give give us a, a brief rundown. I'm not an expert in this area, but psychedelics do, again, seem to be a very promising area for research. It's very difficult to do because, of course, well, we we call them class with illegal drugs. And so it's very difficult to get appropriate licenses and transport of medication. So it makes it very expensive research. But as you say, early, it used to be quite regularly um, not such good quality research in the 60s and 70s. And there were lots of signs then that it could be helpful for emotional disorders and um, alcoholism and PTSD and so on. And we're not talking about taking them necessarily regularly, but sort of one-off experiences. And they help to seem to dissolve your sense of self and consciousness so that it stops the ruminating and um, being able to help you to focus on the world around you more rather than how you feel. So uh, it looks very promising. I'd love to do more search in that area. But as I said, it is expensive and um, it's quite difficult to get that sort of grant or benefactors to fund it. So, so the um, promising area. The, the research that has been done so far, I mean, what, what sort of setup have they done? So they had patients with, you know, body dysmorphia. And then what no, did they not, do? I mean, it's mainly been depression. Depression, where, okay are given the psilocybin using magic mushroom extracts and it's done in a very certainly people are screened very carefully to make sure that they're not have a history of psychosis or have a medical conditions that might contraindicate it and it's done in a very um with preparation and in a control setting so that it's um to, to minimize any difficulties with with having that hallucinatory experiences and um you may then help have further therapy afterwards to try and integrate your experience. And you may have a repeat of that particular um, experience and so on. So it's it's one-off, two-off. We don't yet know whether you need to repeat it. We don't know the long-term things, but it does seem to be very promising. I'm sure David will know more about this than me, but I was watching a Netflix show on, <laughs> um, I guess, alternative treatments. And one of them was ayahuasca, which is... Yep a plant sort of native to South America. And it's exactly what you were saying. They were using it in a very uncontrolled way, you know, just sort of like Mm. a ceremony down in uh, Mm. Brazil, I think it was. Um, But basically exactly what you said, it's sort of the people who came out of their, you know, trances and, and, and they went there for specific reasons like, you know, dealing with, you know, alcoholism or whatever. They, they said that they sort of felt like their, um, voices in their in their mind that made them focus on alcohol just sort of melted away it was interesting so i'm guessing it's a similar thing it it is and uh, i remember as a medical student um i actually interviewed once uh, a podcast it was on a medical magazine rd lang who was quite keen on these things at the time (laughs) and uh, he, he predicted that in years to come there would be some subset of doctors as he called them who had the license to be able to prescribe these things so um, it may come true one day, but it's going to take time to build that evidence and be able to politically, you know, allow prescription of these things for medical for medical purposes. Yeah. I mean, um, as Jake said, I'm sort of been interestingly watching this from the sidelines as someone, again, that's a lay person, just sort of interest in, you know, the full circle that these these um, substances have sort of gone through and watching like the vilification and then all of a sudden people going, actually, hold on, you know, maybe there is some value here. Maybe we should start looking at, at this again. 
but it seems to be, and from from my understanding, is that it's um, the way the function is that it helps a, a lot with neuroplasticity, helps people, as you said, let go of um, these these feelings that they sort of harboring in their mind, um, sort of a lot of these triggers and so on. It seems to allow people to, I guess, almost like erase or, or I don't even know how to explain it but you sort of see interviews I haven't been through the process myself well, it's, 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 it's very much research and it's not possible to get at the moment <laughs> yeah um, unfortunately I've got to be leaving in a second because I got another appointment that's all right no problem well I think we were effectively at the end of our podcast so thank you so much for your time professor uh, I know that we've sort of been planning this for a while very quickly just remind us um, how our listeners might get hold of you um, if they want to sort of reach out or go to your website um, it's it's most of my uh, contacts and details are on my website um, which is www.vealve.co.uk Fantastic. We'll put that at the bottom of the uh, the podcast description. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Professor. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.